0: You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 36 Like the Wolf. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. Hunger is the best sauce. Once more. Hunger is the best sauce. I'll start by pointing out something about animals that I often have to explain to my students. I would say I explain this, the difference between humans and animals, in the neighborhood of two or three times a year. And despite being a rather time-honored truth, a rather conventional philosophical claim, My students are nonetheless sometimes hard-pressed to believe it. The key difference between animals and humans is that animals are not contemplative. And when I say they're not contemplative, I don't mean they can't think, because animals can make decisions. But animals do not conceive of the future... And they do not have the ability to integrate different time frames and ranges of meaning for singular signs. Walker Percy explains all of this. That's, I know, a rather abstract way of putting it. Walker Percy has a, a fantastic chapter on semiotics right in the middle of Lost in the Cosmos, where he explains all this. And the way that I often you know, suss this out for my students, especially this idea of animals being incapable of perceiving a diversity of meaning from a singular sign, is that if you use the word walk around a dog, it doesn't matter if you're referring to a cooking instrument or a stroll. A dog perceives the sign, walk, the word walk, that single syllable, the same way. So you might be talking about frying um, some chicken and vegetables in your walk, but if the dog has become acclimatized to the word "walk," meaning that the dog is gonna be put on a leash and go outside the house, the dog doesn't know that the word "walk" can refer to multiple things. And this is because dogs are not contemplative creatures. They can't perceive a range of meanings for a single sign. Now, What this means, like, why start here? Hunger is the best sauce. Why start here? Animals get hungry, and people get hungry. But animals are incapable of the kind of hunger that human beings are capable of. You might recognize this because animals don't make sauces. That might seem rather obvious that animals lack the sophistication to make sauces. But if you're making a sauce, it's clear that you care about something other than mere nutrition. Because it takes time to make a sauce, it takes effort. And the time you spend making a sauce is time you spend not gratifying your hunger. So animals experience hunger But they satiate their hunger instinctually. When animals are hungry, they have no reason to wait. So as soon as an animal experiences hunger, it eats. Now, human beings can experience, well, can and do experience, the same kind of animal hunger that a lion or a dog feels. But because human beings are not merely instinctual creatures, but are capable of contemplation, they can interpret hunger in a number of different ways. It's for this reason that if you experience hunger for long enough, hunger goes... I mean, hunger immediately is a desire for food or drink We'll conflate hunger and thirst for a moment. Immediately, when you feel hunger or thirst, it's a desire for food. And when your hunger is not immediately satisfied, you perceive it as maybe, on some kind of primal level, it's a threat to your health. But you can wait. And the longer you hold out your hunger, the more complex hunger becomes. And I say that because if you're hungry, but you're not eating, food has a greater meaning to you than that which merely satisfies hunger. If you're hungry, but not eating, you have a soul. You must have a soul if you're hungry, but not eating, because you perceive there as being something higher than the immediate material needs of the body. If there was nothing higher than the immediate material needs of the body, you would be an animal that eats instinctively whenever it gets hungry. Now, the, the saying, I don't know where this comes from, I'm gonna guess it's French. Hunger is the best sauce. A sauce exists for delight. A sauce may have some nutritional value. But sauces are really about delight. Now the saying, hunger is the best sauce, suggests that there is something beyond not only the material world. The material world in which food exists, in which food gives you energy to keep living your life. That there's not only something beyond the material world, there's even something beyond flavor. That when we think of food, there's nutrients and there's flavor, but then there's something else too. That food is not just tastiness and nutrients. And this is because hunger is not a sauce. That's not the, that's not the claim. The proverb makes a, a value judgment about what's better and best. Hunger is the best sauce. Now, a sauce exists for delight. Which means that if hunger is a better sauce than sauce... There is some kind of delight that is experienced only by way of the intellectual suffering that comes from hunger, which is not immediately gratified. Now, when you hear this proverb, hunger is the best sauce, I hope that you realize, you know, instinctively, (laughs) intuitively, that that the proverb is about food on the surface of things, and the proverb is true of food, but that the proverb is actually about all of life, not just about food, that this is a principle by which you could live by. And that anything for which there is a desire, there is also a hunger for the desired thing that is capable of Transforming the thing that you desire into something even more delightful than it was before. Now, what this all comes down to is a willingness to stall gratifying your desires the moment that you feel them. Whether those desires are for food, for sex, safety, any kind of physical comfort or pleasure, that there is an enjoyment. That's only possible by way of waiting. Now, this is, I'll admit, you know, 10 minutes in, but dealing with a lot of assertions here. Waiting makes the thing that you wait for better. That's an assertion, though. But how? Let me deal with this question for a minute. How does waiting make it better? Well, let me give an example that I wrote about several years ago. But which I'd like to return to here because I return to this odd moment. Monthly, I would say. Monthly, every other month. I think of this curious little episode from the life of my family from a few years ago. Maybe four years ago. So my eldest daughter, even four years ago, was a huge Harry Potter fan. Four years ago, at Christmas, this movie, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, is going to come out. And my children, not four years ago, and not today either, really. My children are not aware of popular culture. They're aware of it. How about this? That's, that's a bit unfair. They're aware of it. As it's filtered through my wife and myself and also their friends from school. And when we go to Target, they have sponge-like little brains that pick up the names of all the products that are oriented towards children. This means that they they have some knowledge of popular culture, but not great. Not not an immediate knowledge of it. Because they don't watch TV, don't have phones. Well my wife and I say to ourselves let's surprise the kids and on the first day of Christmas break we'll take them to the theater so they can see Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And my wife and I had such a fine time just plotting the surprise of this trip to the theater. My kids don't go to the movies much, but they're delighted, intrigued, sublimated by a trip to the theater. I think it's the greatest thing. So my wife and I are scheming, first day of Christmas break, we're going to take them to see this movie, and we're not even going to tell them that we're going to the theater, we're just going to pack them into the car, we're going to drive to the theater, we're going to walk up to the box office, and they won't know that we're going to see the movie until I ask for four tickets to see Fantastic Beasts somewhere to find them. So the day comes, and I had been looking forward to this for weeks. I'd been looking forward to surprising my children by taking them to see this movie. So the day comes, I'm impossibly excited, just just because I, I like making my kids happy. That's a banal thing to say. Every parent loves to make their kids happy. So we go to the theater. And as soon as we get into the parking lot, both of my children, what are we doing here? Are we going to see a movie? I keep mum, get out of the car, go to the box office. And I ask for four tickets to Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And there's the great reveal. The words come out of my mouth, and then my children know we're going to go see two minutes from now Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them and I mean I when I say I would like four tickets to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them I'm expecting over my shoulder like raucous cheering to issue forth from both of their little mouths no such cheering And I turn around and I look at them. And Camilla, my eldest, is smiling. And Beatrice is looking dazed. I don't know that Beatrice understood what was happening. And Camilla says, in a somewhat calm, a a cheery but calm voice, oh, are we going to see Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? And I said, yes. And she was like, oh. That's nice. <laughs> it was not this... raucous, joyous happiness that I was... hoping for. And, you know, we went into the movie, we watched it. They had a good time. I don't like those movies. I like the Harry Potter movies. I'm not into these. spin-off cash grab. Super expensive blockbusters. They enjoy the film. It's always awkward when you take the family to see a movie and you're dad and you're the only one who doesn't like it. <laughs> you come out every once in Oh, it's so great. What did you think, Dad? I never launch into a critique at that moment. I always say something like, it sure was fun to go to the movies together. But I... I know this—you know—this whole scene didn't constitute any kind of great tragedy, but I left thinking, "Huh. Well, my plan to delight my children was somewhat ineffective here." And in mulling it over—I've been mulling this over for four years—I think the reason why they were only mildly delighted by it was because they didn't get to look forward to it. There was no hunger simply put there was no long build-up there was a surprise but i'm gonna say it's often hard to in the moment of surprise even a surprise gift it's often hard to drum up suddenly the real excitement and gratitude that's appropriate to the situation i mean it's not impossible and it does happen I'm not saying, you know, never throw anyone a surprise party or something dumb like that, but I realized that if I had told my children, like, two weeks before we went, on the first day of Christmas break, we're gonna go see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, they would have spent the next two weeks looking forward to it. They would have spent the next two weeks planning it, thinking it through, turning it over in their heads. And that they would have said, you know, every other day, Oh, I can't wait. We're going to go see Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And they would have played it out in their heads. They would have thought about driving to the movie theater and getting out of the car and buying the tickets and buying the popcorn and sitting down and watching the trailer. And they they would have turned the event over in their minds a hundred different ways before we actually went. And this is what... This is what ungratified hunger allows us to do. Hunger that's not immediately gratified allows us to convert our desires for sensual things into spiritual realities and to enjoy them and contemplate them as spiritual realities before we actually enjoy them as physical realities. That's what happens when you wait. The thing that you long for can become a hundred different things it can become comic awkward it can become delightful it can become sublime religious you can conceive of anything and it's connection to the whole world like yeah you when you wait when you when you give yourself time to become hungry You can think about something long enough to see its many different connections to everything else in the world. And and so the longed-for thing can produce in you a range of emotions, a range of intellectual rabbit trails you can go off on, waiting for a thing to happen. And then when it does actually happen, the event itself is deeper because it's the fulfillment of many different desires, not just hunger, not just lust, not just whatever. Surprise, though, and I don't want to go, I don't want to like come down on a surprise, because I have been to some great surprise parties in my life. And I do think that there's something profound about surprise. ...that has a kind of theological correlation. And it's good for people to understand surprise. Oh, man. Again, surprise. Maybe what I'm saying is that... ...the longer you want something... ...the better it becomes... ...because the thing can be transformed... ...into intellection and spirituality. It can be enjoyed spiritually, contemplated spiritually... ...in the abstract, as an ideal long before it actually comes. Now, I will say that that when you spend a long time looking forward to something and you go through all these different emotions and different suspicions about what the thing will be like when it actually comes, when it actually comes, it tends to pass like a fever dream. the thing that you look forward to for so long often passes and you feel as though you're in a state of oblivion. This is why so few people... Well, you know, the wedding day, for instance. The wedding day goes by in a blur. But you end up, though it goes by in a blur, you end up remembering a lot about your wedding day Slowly and patiently over the years. There are things that I remember about my wedding day 15 years later that I have not thought about in almost 15 years. And that's because I look forward to my wedding day for a long time. Look forward to everything about my wedding day for a long time. And everything that takes place on the wedding day gets to become protean. It It passes through all of these phases and shapes in your head. It's everything from comedy to tragedy in your head. So that when it actually happens, I think the reason why these anticipated events pass by in a blur is because you're actually experiencing a hundred different things when you experience one thing. And for years later, you kind of slowly untangle the 100 different faces that you wore on your wedding day. That's what, to a much less extent much smaller sin, I'm sorry. I mean, this is true of anything that you look forward to. The longer you look forward to it, the greater the blur it is when it passes by. But it becomes food for the imagination. It stalks the memory. The more you look forward to a thing, the more full your memory is of that thing after it happens. Which is why people that gratify all their desires for food, sex, whatever, people that gratify all their desires the second they feel them have impoverished imaginations. Because they're sensualists. They don't spend any time looking forward to something. And so when the event actually happens, it's just one thing. It's not a deep event. Hunger is the best sauce and a good life is one that is both filled with hunger and filled with sauce.